The test yeah. for leadership is not, does our organization never make mistakes? Do we never screw up? Because like nobody will pass that test. It, the question is like, what do we do when we do? Mm-hmm. Like, when we have a screw up to that level of impact to the fact that we've got itchy consumers, right? Like we, we've done a bad thing. Where does that go? Is that a thing that we have conversations about and we understand how it, like, how did it come to be within our organization? And what are the changes that we're making as we go forward? Welcome to Farm to Tabor. Today we have Melissa and Jonathan Nightingale here to talk with us about some common threads in tech, the business culture and agricultural business culture and the things they have in common, I think, are things that none of us wish were happening. It's been kind of a golden age of scams in both of our industries. This is something we've talked about before. In agriculture, we have a lot of sustainable, high-profile darlings that have recently been exposed as not great operations between Stone Barns, Belcampo, Daily Harvest. They've all had some trouble. In tech, we've got just a series of continuing issues. We've got Theranos, then WeWork, then FTX. FTX started after Theranos collapsed and investors still went for it, despite really obvious red flags. Now that it's collapsed, people are starting to write articles about, oh, here's everything I saw at the beginning with FTX that was wrong. And yet they still got lots and lots of money. So I think a question on a lot of our minds is, why is everything a scam? And what's the point of trying if scams are what get the money? <laughs> oh, is that all? <laughs> is that all? Boy, this yeah. is a short light, podcast. Light and breezy. Yeah. Why is everything a scam? You know, it's funny you mentioned several. One of the ones that stands out for me, which is old news now because it happened back in the summer, was when Adam Newman raised a ton of money for his next venture after building WeWork up into a giant thing and then watching a lot of it collapse back down. And at the time, there was a bunch of discourse about, I can't believe that that would happen and white men always get the money. Like, that's for sure true. There's for sure a lot of accuracy in that. And the counterpunch from the VC class was from the investors was yeah but he probably learned a bunch mm-hmm. <laughs> he probably he? learned a bunch but building a company that's worth tens of billions and then watching nines of billions disappear those are two really educational things there's not a lot of people in that space so obviously we want to get in on the next round because probably this one he will have learned all those lessons already there's also a lot of i can't hear you i can't hear you if you haven't raised a company like if you haven't sort of brought a company up to billions of dollars like Yes, all the things that you're saying in terms of like red flags that are there early on were early on. But like, did you raise billions of dollars? Like, if not, then suddenly you don't have a seat at the table in terms of being able to even flag or raise concerns about any of those things. And it's funny because the reaction you want to have is it's not fair, right? That Like the, the money is flowing to people who not only have not done a lot to earn it, but have d- done several things to earn distrust, right? Have Have done several things to earn skepticism. Mm-hmm. And I think... The most nakedly capitalist VCs will tell you it was never supposed to be fair. Our job is to allocate the money from our LPs, from our limited partners, from pension funds or whatever. Our job is to allocate that money to the people we think are most likely to return a bunch. They can have an ethics statement. I think a lot of them try to act in ethical ways, but fundamentally their incentive is to pick the next winner, not to act for maximum justice. So kind of circling back to that, we have, again, a bunch of high-profile collapses, which I have to imagine are not that great for the balance sheet. So (laughs) that's what really gets my attention. You know, we've talked about how there's no good reason to abuse your employees. Even if it does make you money, you still shouldn't do it. But we have all these instances of folks doing really ethically sketchy stuff that then left led to enormous loss of money. And folks keep going for that behavior. So that's what intrigues me. 
But I think like so much of how we tell stories around business is baked into like high risk, high rewards. And yes, like taking a big swing means that like it may go catastrophic, but like obviously like part of taking that big swing meant that we knew that part of the risk was the going to be that it was going to end up in catastrophe. And so when it ends up in catastrophe, you're like, well, we sort of knew that going in. Yeah. They, I don't know if they still do this, but I remember in high school, there was this business class assignment where you basically had to pick a, a shadow portfolio of stocks at the start of the quarter, right? And you could pick whatever you wanted. And obviously you weren't using real money. It was just imaginary, but you'd track it over the course. And it was a way to, to develop some financial literacy, I guess. Let the kids lose billions of dollars so they learn, like Adam Newman. <laughs> well, that's, that's sort of what you figure out, right? Like on day one, you try to be diligent about it and like do some research. And on day two, you realize, wait, if I lose, there's no real downside. And so like what I should do is optimize for volatility. I should pick like even if they're penny stocks where it's just a coin toss, whether they're going to go stratospheric or fall into the ground, like the entire assignment becomes meme stocks because the only return that matters other than I guess your grade to the extent that you care about it is sort of the bragging rights of saying, well, you know, I picked some things that went way up. And if it goes way up, even if it's fluke, I attribute that to my skill and I, I gain status from it. If it goes way down, I can always just blame, you know, macroeconomic trends or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something that comes up over and over again in the FTX reporting is the folks involved just kind of said, you know, this is all about what maximizing your upside and what's the downsides you lose all the money that you already had. So who cares? So that is just so interesting to me. I mean, you can't really build in a situation where folks, you know, like, you really do kind of have to take a few chances like, hey, there's a new technology, do we think what's really gonna really have legs, you got to put some money into it and be able to walk away if it just doesn't get adopted. So you don't want to have a guillotine waiting for anyone who fails at an investment. But at the same time, when there's no downside for massive gambles, this is kind of the behavior that emerges. So maybe a lot of people out here are wondering, you know, as someone who is working on my own business projects and everything. So something I keep running into is I do risk management, right? Food safety risk management. So my job is to reduce the risks. And we're, <laughs> we're in an industry where the risks are all externalized. And so I was working for a lot of founders who really had no interest and no motivation to do any of the stuff that they were supposed to for not even for legal reasons. They just kind of knew that they were untouchable. And that made it very, very difficult for me to do my work to ensure that, you know, customers weren't getting diarrhea from their uh -huh. food handling practices. <laughs> As a diarrhea hunter, it was a very difficult terrain to, it's to work concrete in. externality. Yeah. yeah, it was very challenging. And so again, this is something we've kind of talked about is how do you get companies to even try and do due diligence when this is the state of affairs? And then if you are a founder who believes in due diligence, how do you sell that to people? Because it kind of feels like maybe nobody cares. Oh, man, you're going to get us going on this one. <laughs> well, I guess, Sarah, what I asked you is like, you're talking about companies where they didn't care until there was some moment where they did care. We managed to catch their problems. I managed to scare them with a lawyer until they backed down is what I wound up having to do. It, it was not immediately apparent to them why what was going on in their facility was a problem until I got a lawyer involved. Risk management was just not in their awareness as a thing they needed to worry about. So yeah, in a business environment like that, I'm working on my own different new projects now where risk management is a really huge part of what you need to do. And again, this, we don't have to put this part in the podcast. This might be just like a personal question, but I'm a little bit wondering how you're supposed to pitch this <laughs> if nobody cares. Okay. So first of all, there's nothing about business that's going to make you a good person if you're a shitty person. Like literally nothing about founding a company that moment of founding, like will sort of switch a light switch and you're like, okay, well, you were a shithead 10 minutes ago, but now like now altruism and now ethics have shown up. Like if those weren't there before, there's really nothing about that process that's necessarily going to like kick your butt into feeling like those things are important. 
one of the things that we see in terms of sort of venture backed organizations is that like serial founders vibe different than first time founders. And when you look into why, or when you talk to organizations where you're with folks who are sort of CEO, co-founder for the second, third, fourth time around, when you ask them, they're like, I touched that hot stove. And that's the difference, right? It's like there were things that early on we did not think were important that we did not place enough emphasis on that were risk when the organization was getting started, but risk that like I either downplayed, devalued, or frankly, just like didn't clock as risk. And then it came and bit me. And then the next time around, when I founded a company, I was aware of it and I knew that that was a thing to look out for. Yeah, I think the core thing that Melissa's pointing to there that, you know, if you didn't come into the business with values, capitalism is not going to put them there for you, right? So you're allowed to build a business where you treat everybody decently, right? It, it actually, it turns out to be good for business, but like, it's sort of beside the point, right? Like you're allowed to do it because this is your time on earth and this is what you're spending it on. And like, why would you want to be weighed and measured and found to have made a bunch of people miserable, right? Like you're allowed to do all that stuff, but even the threat of litigation, even risk management departments, like sending emails with a lot of capital letters and exclamation points, like if fundamentally you don't care that your product is jeopardizing other people, you don't care that your employees are burning out or that like you're ordering them back to work during a pandemic, like whatever it is that if that's not a thing that troubles you from an internal place, the threat of lawsuits, the best it can do is get damages years later that are going to be financial in nature and are unlikely to reverse whatever harm you did on day one. And I would say with empathy, because I came from, like I came up through PR, right? I came up with through like doing public relations for fast growing tech organizations. And so much of PR in those early days is identifying risk, is saying like, hey, if I were working for the New York Times tech beat, this is what I would write. Do we feel okay with that? If you saw this in like every hometown newspaper, like where you grew up, would you feel good about it? And if not, let's take a moment and either like make some adjustments or address the sort of things that don't feel right here. But I think like many folks, like again, it doesn't feel like a risk until it's really framed concretely in terms of like, this is what that would look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a buddy who was doing his PhD in PR when we were in grad school. And He had this really interesting observation, which is that the person in charge of PR in a company typically is told what to do. You know, the C-suite made a mistake, could go clean it up. And he said, you know, like the PR person really needs to be like in the circle of people who make decisions for the company because the company exists in the world around you. (laughs) And maybe you should think about consequences before you do things, which I thought was a really great idea in his part. And I don't really see it taking off, but I'd love to. Yeah, I think that that cleaning up messes that you can anticipate mm-hmm. is a frustration for a lot of PR people, right? A lot of PR folks will say, like, I knew on Monday that my Thursday night was going to be totally toast. Mm-hmm. And it, it should be said, like, I don't want to let anybody off the hook for abusing their people. That's not my goal with this next sort of observation. But we work with bosses all day, every day. Like, it's what we do. And we pretty consistently find that the operating engine at the core of a lot of the damage they're doing is ignorance. Sometimes it's malevolence, I guess, but like we we don't encounter it very often. And maybe there's selection bias there in terms of who would show up in a program with us. But the number of bosses that we've had go through something and pull us aside afterwards and say something like, I would do so much of the last year really differently. This person that was not succeeding, I can see how I failed that person. And I could not see that at the time. I was very disappointed with them. But like I see now where I was just not giving them the supports they need, right? And again, that doesn't let someone off the hook. If you're cashing the paycheck, you got to do whatever you've got to do to sort of govern yourself accordingly. You, you can't be holding power in an organization over two people or 2,000 people and abuse them and say, oh, well, I, I guess I should have gotten more training, right? 
but it's worth noting that many of the people we're giving that power to have no baseline competency for the work they're doing. And particularly in tech, right? Like we as an industry and as sort of an orientation and dogma downplay the sort of value of effective management within our organizations, right? We really want to be innovative. And sometimes that innovation means we are rewriting the rules from entirely whole cloth. And when you look at organizations where folks, like where things have gone incredibly sideways, it often comes from a like, we deliberately made the decision not to look at any of the best practices and how to organize labor how to treat labor in adherence with local labor guidelines, or how to sort of get work done. And when you start by reinventing all of it, you reinvent all of the mistakes along the way too. Yep. Amazing. So this is getting into some stuff that I, that's why I want to have you in here. So first off, I want to touch back to something Jonathan said, which was nobody's going to force you to be bad to your people. This is something a lot of folks don't necessarily really kind of wrap their heads around with business is our culture is the person who's in charge of the business is in charge, which has some unhealthy dimensions. It also means that if you choose to treat people well, no one's going to stop you. You're in charge. You can do that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Like a lot of people want to frame the values at work and the sort of human treatment in purely capital terms. And I always think it's a red herring. Like, yes, it turns out to be profitable, but it would be good to treat people with decency, even if it weren't profitable. Mm -hmm. The thing is, it re sometimes requires more skill to run a profitable business that also treats people really well, because there are so many voices around you who will be like, like, let's put off that raise until next quarter. Let's pay minimum wage for our entry level jobs. Like there's so much support for a lowest common denominator approach there. And many of the folks who are running really good organizations and treating their people well, there is a chorus of voices saying that they're running it soft. Mm-hmm. Like even you notice we that talk too. about management skills, right? Like I loathe when folks are like, oh, you teach soft skills. I'm like, the way that we organize humans to get important things done in organizations, that's what you've described as soft? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, married to a person who works in both history and politics, it makes you think, oh, so this is actually the one thing that matters. So, <laughs> so I want to circle back to that it takes more skill to run an operation well situation, right? Because this is a common thread I see between what's going on in agriculture with the business culture there and then in tech. Agriculture is in a little bit of a unique situation where the culture is, you're independent. You're doing it yourself. You know, you run the place. No one can come and tell you what to do. And I see that lead to a lot of poor practices because not only is there nobody telling you what to do, not that someone telling you what to do means that they're going to be right, but there's really no baseline to compare yourself with. People are just kind of shooting off the hip a lot of the time with how they run their business. Particularly in situations where you have to have hired labor, which generally in the U.S., about 50% of the farm labor in the U.S. is undocumented. It's very easy if you are the kind of person who does power trips to do that with no consequences on that population, which I think is part of the point of why that population is preferred for farm labor. Yeah, just the, the management skills in agriculture are really not emphasized. I would hear farmer after farmer kind of complain about it's hard to find good help these days. You'll get a new crew and they don't already know how to pick strawberries was one I heard within the last couple of weeks. And I asked them. A guy who runs McDonald's, do you think when he hires new people, he complains that they don't already know how to run a deep fryer? No, there's an expectation that as a business owner, you train people, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? And so like just that basic level of skill of not only I don't know how to train people, but oh, I should know how to train people is just completely missing in a lot of the agricultural sector. If you don't have the skills to train people or understand that you should train people, you're not going to have good results and you're going to get frustrated and you might take it out on the people you're working with which I think is the kind of thing that you guys are alluding to. And yeah, I'd love to talk about how we wound up in this culture of 
not only do we have poor management skills, but we just kind of consider that normal. That is really interesting to me, that it's normal for folks to be in a position of authority with very little skill for them to deal with that. It puts managers in, in a bad position because you're stressed out. You're just like trying to use terrible coping mechanisms to get through your <laughs> through your workday. It puts employees in a terrible position. I have some thoughts about how as a culture we arrived at this place. I would love to hear from you guys before I speculate. <laughs> So I'll say like one of the most obnoxious things we say to bosses is there's no talent shortage. You're just bad at hiring because it re-anchors and puts the onus on sort of the hiring process being a great process and leading to great outcomes back where it belongs. And I love the thing in terms of like, you know, do you think people show up on day one knowing how to do the job inside and out in other industries and other sort of organizations? And the answer is like, no, but it's probably the first time that boss heard that's something that's expected of them. Mm -hmm. That's what we mean when we talk about ignorance. Just there's so much of any time I hear about a CEO who's done something bold and visionary and ruffled some feathers or whatever, I'm just like, just substitute the word incompetence in. Like, I'll make it a browser add-on if you like. Just anytime somebody describes a CEO in that language, just put the word incompetence in and see if it still scans. Because like it may. And it's a pretty easy test if you're close to one of these people or if you are one of these people, right? Like if you're coming from a competence place, then it should be straightforward to say, I had five tools at my disposal. You know, one tool was a careful change management process. One tool was sort of iterating our way to greatness. And another tool was blowing it up. And it's controversial. But in order to, like, really set a cultural shift, this is what I did. And here's how I made sure that my people were intact, but that the business is taken in a totally different direction. And that's a really obvious, rudimentary conversation for someone competent to have. And I think a lot of leaders can't because they didn't consider anything else. They just consider, like, I'm in charge and I'm annoyed. And my power plus my emotions gives me license to just take that out on whoever's around me as an emblem of like, don't mess with me because I have the ability to have a tantrum in your direction as well. And like, that's not competency, right? But if it were, then great. Then we should be able to have a pretty level-headed conversation about what other options are on the table. I also think our workforce has gotten significantly more complex, right? We anticipate folks coming into the workforce from a variety of experiences and backgrounds from like, we've got folks who are managing for the very first time and they're managing globally distributed teams where they haven't necessarily met the sort of people that they're, that are reporting to them or they're on their teams ever. And they're sort of managing across cultural lines and sometimes across languages. And like, we're really asking folks to do a different job. So like 60 years ago, you're managing a team maybe, maybe like one manager in a thousand is managing in an environment that's different from where they grew up, but very few. And today I'd say like the vast majority of managers, particularly in the tech sector where we work day in, day out, those folks are are really managing not only sort of the folks that are in their office with them, but they're also often managing across, like across the globe. Yeah. You know, we don't work in ag, obviously. So the dynamics are going to be different, but one of the things that's been really interesting in tech is that particularly during COVID, when I became, you know, substantially more practical to jump between jobs, right, or to be interviewing at one job while doing another job, because as soon as you close the Zoom window, nobody can scrutinize your behavior. And as a result, employees became more mobile. There was this real shift, you could feel the shift in power, where employers were suddenly very interested in investing in management, but but investing in anything that would have their employees stay there, right? Because they were feeling that turnover and those training costs every time they brought new people in. And then as soon as COVID retreated enough and there became some economic excuses, you saw all of these CEOs who I think begrudgingly were beseeching their employees want to just grab that power and take it back. And, and in 
ludicrous ways, like, like really performance oriented, all hands calls where they're like enough of the blazing around. We're all getting back to the office where real work does. And I'm like, you're not even from that part of the country. Where'd that accent come from? But like, it's just what they do to sort of reassert because there are people out there trying to run companies in conscientious ways. I believe that. But there are also a set of people who felt like they had to perform that when the market conditions were such that that was how to retain talent. And you can tell they resented it because as soon as the brakes came off in their org, or even when they're watching some other abusive leader take it out on their team, they're cheering from the sidelines because they're like, yeah, that's right. I'm the wealthiest here. I have the most senior title and ergo, I also feel the frustration of not being able to make my will into law. We wrote a newsletter piece in the height of sort of that shift called the masks are off and the masks are off, right? This idea that like, this is who those leaders were the whole way along. And that in order to retain talent to Jonathan's point, like maybe I've sort of adopted the idea that I needed to be an employee first organization. Or I really needed to think about employee engagement in any way, shape or form, but that the moment I didn't have to anymore, like my sort of true colors came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in that moment of they had the fear of God in them for a minute, but that didn't lead to any change in their skill sets or their attitudes in any kind of permanent way. It was, this is a thing I have to put up with for a while, and now we're back to normal. In a way, it kind of speaks to the value of keeping employers on their toes. <laughs> but yeah, when they're comfortable, this is what we wind up with, perhaps. I wish it wasn't like that. I wish we could just be chill and do our jobs. But unfortunately, I think, you know, we saw the benefit of a seller's market for labor. That was kind of nice for a little bit, a little taste of it. I will say, like, it's not a dead end. It's not like we just have to wait for things to turn around again, right? I mean, one, tech is experiencing this huge change in how labor talks about itself, right? There was a, a 30-year period where the idea of a union in a tech shop just didn't make any sense. And if you asked people about it, they'd say, why? We get paid well already. As though like, that's the only thing a collective action mm-hmm. would be useful for. And now that's really shifted. And it's shifted largely around ethical and values lines, right? Like the big driving force for unionization efforts in places like Amazon or Google. At Google particularly, it wasn't about people being underpaid, though well-paid workers wanted to organize with the contract workers in the cafeteria and stuff. It was around things like the weapons manufacturer that was going on and being assisted and the fact that people wanted a say in that like that. That is starting to provoke a shift. But the other thing I would say is like, I've been really fascinated by some of the structural work that people are doing. So, you know, Melissa and I, when we started Raw Signal Group, we knew it was going to be a B Corp eventually and and went through that certification process. But one of the steps in that certification process that that almost seems like window dressing, except it isn't, is that you have to alter your charter. You have to alter your corporate charter to say like, we're allowed to do something other than shareholder primacy. We're allowed to consider environmental stakeholders social stakeholders, community stakeholders. We don't have to, but we're allowed to. And that structural change is interesting because it persists. Like, you know, we could amend it, but as long as it's there, it's a permission that wasn't baked into the boilerplate originally. And there's a lot of places where you can put in policies that say, we always train, right? There, There are things that we've put in place from a, having a good day, from waking up and being like, what if we treated people well, right? You can put those policies in place and just lock them in structurally, so they cover you off even when you have lesser temptations later. Yeah, no, I mean, like, as things have started getting wild at Twitter over the last month or so, you know, some folks have pointed out, you know, we talked about unionizing at Twitter earlier, and we thought, what do we need that for? Things are mm-hmm. fine here. That doesn't mean they'll always be fine. And that's why you already want to have a union by the time things get crazy. So I think that was an excellent point that they made. Preemptive unionization can be a wonderful thing. 
Yeah, it's funny. I don't know. I don't know U.S. labor law well enough to know what would have happened if they were trying to do a unionization drive while there was a purchase on the table. But I'm confident that whatever you want to say, good or bad, whether it would have worked out or not, whether the employees would have voted for it or not, we'd be telling a different story now mm -hmm. about that organization. Maybe. Mm -hmm. I think like we've also seen preferential layoffs and sort of who is getting laid off and where they're based and what their orientation is toward labor and organizing of labor. Like I think we've seen organizations use the fact that they are sort of doing reduction in force across the board to say it's across the, for it's across the board, but we have specific pockets in mind that we're targeting. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. I mean, my main exposure to that is academic labor. At University of Florida, when we were there, they were going through a little bit of downsizing. And of course, they laid off. There's a bunch of folks who are tenured, right? So you can't start with them. You have to like eliminate an entire department to do that. So they generally laid off adjuncts who disproportionately happened to be women of color who were teaching foreign languages for which they only needed a section or two at a time. So it didn't make sense to have them on as a full-time employee. That's who ended up getting fired first. So yeah, I don't really have a good same thing in tech. Yeah, yeah, we're seeing yeah. very similar things. Like I think though you can work from anywhere. We don't need you in an office. And and lots of folks having conversations with their direct line manager and saying, I'm planning to move. Before I move, let's really talk it through. Like, is this okay? Do you have a commitment to me? And feeling like they had not only manager approval, but like manager endorsement and enthusiasm that it was okay to sort of pick up and not have an expectation of being either back in the office on a regular basis or even back in the office on a semi-regular basis. And then finding that suddenly like the entire sort of thing that they were told two years ago isn't true anymore and trying to figure out, okay, what does that mean? And simultaneously, we are seeing sort of clusters of those layoffs and reduction in force happening for people who cannot get back, right? Like Twitter being a good example where Elon said, like, if you can't get back to the office, you don't have a job. When we're working with bosses, one of the things we come back to a lot is, and how is it working? right? You've got this technique. You want to manage in a different way than what your peers are doing or what we might say or whatever. Okay, fair enough. We're not doctrinaire on this. Like there's lots of ways that could be the correct way for your organization and for you as a human. How is it working? Like what's your scorecard and, and how's it working out according to that? And so you can say, you know, I remember Netflix cut a bunch of stuff a while ago and they, I'm sure, would point to subscriber base flattening out, mm -hmm economic pressure, lots more competition. Like, okay, fine. So you had to have a reduction in force. I get that. How's it working out? Because like from where I sit, a lot of the stuff, a lot of the projects being led by black women were cut. I don't need anybody in there to be deliberately targeting those people. Maybe that happened, maybe they don't, but I can't see inside their heart. But what I can say is the outcome is that the laid off workforce looks really different than the retained workforce. And why is that? Right. And like, that's a thing you're allowed to hold management accountable for without saying a thing about what they believe or don't believe. You can say, well, look at your actions, look at the outcome in the organization and, and what you've done to our employee base, right? Same to Melissa's point about like turfing anybody who's organizing for labor rights. Like, yeah, you may get dragged in front of the labor review board, but again, a lot of leaders can kick that down the road and eventually pay a fine and not pay a lot of attention to it. I think the accountability for their existing employees, for their customers, for anybody who's paying attention is how are your actions actually working out in practice? And, and are you proud of that? And do I feel good about interacting with you in that context? And specifically, like when we look at the complexity of the current workforce, like there are things where 20, 40 years ago, we would have anticipated that if you're stepping into a management or a leadership role, the organization is either sort of 
holding your hand through that or sending you out to go get an executive MBA to make sure that you're equipped for it or has some answer for how are we going to ensure that this person is able to sort of step into this role effectively and had a baseline agreement and an assumption in terms of we are employers for a long period of time, right? We anticipate longevity and loyalty with our workforce and we've got investment that we make in that workforce. And then now we don't, right? Like our average tenure is less than two years for most tech organizations. And so where you look in the past and you're like, okay, like the HPs of the world, the IBMs of the world, right? Like had all of these sort of programs in place with the anticipation that we'll make that investment and we'll sort of recoup on that investment over the long time horizon. Now there's a lot of like, we're going to throw you in the deep end and it is a complex market and it is a complex environment. And we are asking you to answer a whole bunch of things that like 40 years ago, your predecessors never would have had to encounter. And also you're like, by the way, you're getting no training on how to do it. Yeah. So I think that thing that you've observed that companies are a lot more prone to just take someone and throw them in the deep end, no training is kind of a similar thing that we're seeing with uh, the products that they're making as well. Again, we have a lot of companies that are nominally making a product. There's not a whole lot of work done on making sure that it works properly. I think we just had a luxury detergent brand. Turns out it's full of pseudomonas and will give you skin infections. I don't know how you do that with a detergent, but they did. It's like there was not a lot invested in QA for the product here, right? Yeah. You don't get there without also not investing a lot of QA in your leadership who maybe had no idea that that could potentially be a problem, right? If you're working in consumer products, you should be aware enough to not culture pseudomonas in your factory to the point where it's infecting your customers, right? The test yeah. for leadership is not, does our organization never make mistakes? Do we never screw up? Because like nobody will pass that test. The question is like, what do we do when we do? When we have a screw up to that level of impact to the fact that we've got itchy consumers, right? Like we've done a bad thing. Where does that go? Is that a thing that like we never talk about? Is that a thing that we have conversations about and we understand how it, like how did it come to be within our organization and what are the changes that we're making as we go forward? But I think many organizations have something bad happen and they're like, it is, it is a really big problem that this bad thing happened and we're never going to talk about it. And you're like, well, from there, I guarantee it's going to happen again. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Like Shit happens, right? Say you have some problems in your production line, your product is not so good. If you're investing in management, then you have some institutional memory, you have some folks who know what QA is, and they can say we have to do QA, and they get funded to do it, right? So the products and the shoddy leadership are one and the same problem. And it's just, I don't know, it's just fascinating to me how we're apparently so okay with both. I think I just kind of keep coming back to that of, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. Stuff can work we keep kind of falling into this habit of let's just throw people in the deep end. What could go wrong? We don't talk about the consequences again. Yeah. We're seeing FTX kind of fall apart and you get the impression that it should maybe affect how people do business going forward. But we thought that with Theranos and we work too. So it just, it gives me a lot of questions about why we're not learning anything. Well, in which management force are we building? Are we building a management force where QA is part of the job? And if you don't have the resources that you need, I absolutely want you to put your hand up at an all hands or talk to your own boss about getting the resources that you need to ensure that we've got sort of a good product coming out the other end. Or are we building a workforce where the answer for middle managers is, I just need you to say yes, and I don't need you to think. And if you built a workforce where you have people where their job is to just say yes and not to think, then like you get the outcome of that. Yeah, it's like there's two stable states for any organization, right? One stable state is we take this work seriously. We demonstrate a lot of care. When somebody new comes into our organization, they experience it because we demonstrate care towards them, but we also very quickly onboard them into what care means for us. What care means in terms of the people using our product, what care means in terms of how we treat our colleagues, our vendors, whatever, right? And that high care 
context is mutually reinforcing because if I have a bad day and I sort of rubber stamp some QA report without reading it and a bunch of people get hurt, I'm going to feel that culturally. I'm going to feel that, but also there are people around me who are probably safeguards before it even reaches a customer because part of care is designing systems that don't require human infallibility. Right. And so that tends to be relatively stable unless you do something massive to destabilize it. Mm-hmm. The other really stable state is a lack of care, is concealing errors, is passing the buck, is making it somebody else. And, and like if you come into an organization that is that way, you could be a high care person, but either you're going to bounce off the organization or you're going to be dragged down into it because it's basically impossible just psychologically to show up to work every day killing yourself for care that nobody else in the organization is reciprocating. It's morally exhausting. And so you either give up and become apathetic and fall down into that gravity well with everyone else, or you get out of there and your replacement goes through some version of the same calculus, right? There aren't many people in between. Mm -hmm. There aren't many organizations that mostly care, right? That like pass the buck on, on this kind of skin condition, but not on this other one. There's really just an orientation shift. And it's, one of the things I talked about earlier in terms of like, it requires more skill to be a high care organization. You have to ask more questions. You have to be more curious. You have to do that vulnerable thing where you're like, I think I screwed up <laughs> and like, thank goodness that Sarah caught it. But like, I got to own the fact that I screwed up and take the consequences of that. But if you can reinforce that high care culture, you're also like, those tend to be high profit businesses. They tend to have long retention. There's a ton of institutional knowledge. There's safeguards in place. So you don't have outages the way low care organizations do. Your margins are better. Like it's good capitalism, but it's also just like it requires a consistent cultural investment because if you, if you get acquired by another company, if you bring in a new CEO who brings in a bunch of their entourage who are low care people, like it can really collapse. You can't stay in an in-between state very long. Right. Yeah. I think that's something that continually surprises a lot of my clients is they can't coast. <laughs> they kind of expect me to come in and go like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do it this way. And then you're supposed to coast forever. And then a year or two, especially three, and they're surprised that things got hard all of a sudden again. Unfortunately, having been around a while, I'm, I'm ready for that. And I kind of can prepare them a little bit for it and, and get them back on board. Well, also for every one of those folks who feels like we put the thing in place three years ago, like how many new employees do you have in those three years? How many folks are in the same role that they were in three years ago? And if the answer is we have new people and we have many people doing different jobs than they were doing three years ago, congratulations. But like, then you're not in a steady state. And I think the idea that my org is in a steady state, but it's humans. Like, no, it's not. Like, humans aren't going to be in a steady state for three years. And so your org isn't going to be in a steady state for those three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a couple of things really quick. So that observation you guys mentioned that things either tend to be in a good place and stay that way because you have a lot of reinforcement or they tend to be in a very bad place and stay that way because of reinforcement. A very similar phenomenon uh, also occurs at the national political level. If you want to know more, the dictator's handbook is for you. <laughs> People freak out at the title. They could have picked a better one, but it's just a couple of political science guys going, look, there's a game theory to power. And if you have a system where a leader has to please a lot of people to stay in power, such as, for example, a democracy, they're kind of forced to do things that are generally good for the public. Vice versa, when you have a dictatorship and when when a nation slides from one to the other, or even a nonprofit or a company, it's the same thing. When they slide from one to the other, it's a little, a little, a little, and then all at once. There's really not a whole lot of in-between so that definitely echoes with a lot of things I've seen elsewhere, such as in the food industry. Part of the job with food safety audits was you're trying to basically force your clients to go from the bad place, if they're there, up into that steady state, right? 
up into a more like we're reinforcing safety and we're having high retention state. I would tell people when they asked, what is it like to inspect a food facility? I would say, you never get to a place where you're like, well, everybody's happy and everything is great except for all the rats. That doesn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like the place is either running in high gear in all dimensions or it's not in all dimensions, right? Food safety audits, I think, is a job where it's really easy to feel like it's a job that's nonsense bureaucratic red tape. And the number one thing I was afraid of when I started doing that job was you get into a food facility or a farm and it's just terrible. And the people running it have no idea and you have to tell them that their food plant or their farm is terrible. I was so scared of this. Turns out that's not really a thing that happens. <laughs> yeah, they know, right? Yeah. So usually what will happen is if the place is running in a really bad spot, if everything's broken and everything's disgusting, the person who's in charge of the place is really there. So you're not talking to them, right? The person who writes the check is not there. Mm. The person that they have kind of pushed at you to talk to all day is having a bad time. They're constantly asking for help and resources and constantly being told no. So I found that what you do very early on in that position, when you start seeing an operation that is running poorly and the person they give you, they kind of push a flunky out to talk at you. Once you see a couple things and you can kind of see them starting to get crushed because they already started out that day kind of crushed because that's how they live now. You can take them aside and you say, hey, have you ever had this experience where you asked the people in charge who write the checks for this place? We need to fix this. We need help. We need something. And they didn't listen to you. And every single time they're like, yeah. (laughs) And what you do is you say, well, great news. I mean, not great news, but improving news. I'm about to make you look so smart. Here's what I see. I'm going to write down that they need to fix this stuff. Is there anything I missed? Uh huh. (laughs) So the, I mean, I got a pretty quick look right away at why it is that people who own businesses hate audits so much. Not all of them, right? Not if you've got your hands actually on the business, because then yeah. you're like we're kept up by the same things that you're going to find because yeah. we're working really hard on it. Yeah. The people who run shoddy businesses hate audits. And I will say like a quick asterisk, this does not mean family farms were exempt from this. I think there's this idea that like, oh, if you run the farm, then everything is going to be great. Oh, no. So many times I saw the guy who runs the farm and writes the checks for it, ignoring his wife. You can have this dynamic with as few as two people. And it actually happens quite a bit. So when I relate these kinds of stories to people, they say, oh, so the solution is to go back to small family farms. I'm like, you wish it was. The solution is to listen when people tell you things. There's no shortcut to that. That was rough. Like I've been in that position with those folks who are put in charge of a thing that's kind of doomed to fail because you have no resources before. So it was not that hard to see what was going on. And once I realized like that's a thing we can connect on is like you need help. And I think that is something I can help you with then auditing actually became a lot more interesting. And it really kind of felt like just a nicer job to have once you figured that out. Then after a few years, your spirit gets crushed and you have to get out. But yeah. I was going to say, like, we have a parallel version where we work with a lot of middle managers who feel like, well, they're not the CEO or they're not the co-founders and they're not the people who are in charge. And so, yes, they, they can identify risks to the business or they can identify areas where there's a huge opportunity, but they don't necessarily have the resources or the signing authority to be the person who makes that change. Like, yes, but the thing that happens for bigger organizations, right? It's when you get like beyond sort of two people and one person just ignoring the other person. Like when you get sort of beyond that size, one of the things that happens is that like often our middle managers are the people we're tasking with seeing and spotting either those risks or those opportunities. And we'll talk to folks right, who are like, well, my CEO won't listen. You're describing a situation where like your CEO won't listen to all of the people that they are paying a good chunk of salary to be eyes and ears and to be the pulse of the organization. You're like, well, I don't know what to tell you, right? Like that's a really hard spot to be. But for a lot of those folks, like once they start talking to each other, they're like, oh, like 
10 of us are seeing the same thing, right? Or, or you know, 20 of us are, have the same observation, the same opportunity or same aspect of the business where we're really frustrated and we're trying to get a thing done. It's very hard for the CEO to ignore the entire management core saying this thing is really important. But absolutely, we see folks being relatively frustrated, feeling like they won't listen to me as an individual. You're like, well, maybe not, but it's very hard to ignore your entire middle management core. It's such a mess. Like the prevailing business wisdom, you should push decisions out to the edges that like the people closest to the work mm -hmm. have the, the most context in order to make smart decisions and that only only sort of a clutching power hungry idiot would would try to make all the decisions centrally. But you're spelling out what actually happens. What actually happens is, yes, those people do know the things and they could have saved you a ton of money and possibly a failing audit and whatever else if you'd listened to them before. But like they've learned that you don't. And so from that context, like the, the environment you've created is sufficiently unsafe for them to raise issues that they're just not going raised. Any leader can ask themselves right now, like, how often am I hearing about threats to my business? Because I'll say, like, they happen. And they happen in any organization. And if, if you're hearing about them, it's pretty easy to put out that fire before it becomes a big one. But if you're just not hearing about it, if you yelled at the last five people, or if you feel like your relationship with the people on your team who can spot those risks is that they are nags, mm -hmm. that they're like a constant source of pestering and that they always want to spend more money on things. So it's a strong internal signal that you've probably tuned out the people who are telling you that your house is on fire. Yeah. When we talked to bosses about this idea of like, how frequently are you surprised to the downside? Is your lived experience that the people around you are incompetent and, and surprising you to the downside constantly? Like there's a good chance that somebody somewhere is trying to like give you that signal way earlier and you're just not listening to it. Mm -hmm. We call that the Darth Vader school of management. Okay. So if you can't organize gossip, <laughs> that's also good. In, tech, in a good way. You, Talk you about joke. the problems. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like in tech, everybody's using blind now as a way to gossip, right? Mm -hmm. They're They're using these anonymous workplace sort of, slander apps, whatever, to, to leak to information. They're using it as a way to organize in non-organized context, including the management team to say like, I just saw what we're like our ad spend for next month and it's a disaster. But like, so organizational gossip is poison. And for any manager who feels like they would rather gossip than fix shit, go like get fucked. Like your whole job is fixing the shit in the organization. And so in the moment where like you've decided to gossip about it, it's because you don't think it's your problem. And for every boss in that spot, I'm like, guess what? Good news. Like you are tasked with fixing this problem. And like, you may be annoyed about the fact that you were like hitting resistance from the CEO, but like short of spending the rest of your time trying to figure out how to, how to sort of surpass that resistance or how to get that CEO on side or get them to listen to you. Like the, that is the gig. And part of, I think the thing that we get really fired up about is the idea that like bosses should not sit passively in organizations that are failing. If you're in an organization that's failing, like you are failing. Yeah, we, we talk about it all the time that like one of the side effects of being a manager is that you are management. And that like, if management is running this company into the ground, that's you. And if you're like, no, 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 I mean other management, I mean, I mean senior management, I mean executive management, we're like, okay, I mean great. accounting, like it's yeah. the accounting team. No, right. it's not. It's, no, it's all it's, of you. It's, yeah, that like, it's you, every day you show up and cash that paycheck. Like, I understand, even in tech, you don't know what's going on in somebody else's house. You don't know what's going on in somebody else's bank account. Some of these people are very precarious. Some of them are supporting family members. Like there's a lot of reasons you might stay in a role, even with a manager title or a director title or whatever, that doesn't make you feel good, right? Because you, you are dependent on that salary because you, you're on a, a visa or something that doesn't allow it. Like there can be situations where you've got precarious employment, even when you're in tech. 
So I mean, like I have sympathy for that. And still we vested in you a set of responsibilities and they've got to mean something. Right. And so if you're seeing the organization abusing people and your management, that's on you, unless you're using every hour of every day to, to change it and to move the ship until like dare them to fire you. Right. Like I, I again, I'm sympathetic for the human reality there and who else is going to do it other than the people we literally pay to manage the organization? Yeah, and every single person working under you or under all of the other leaders within the organization, like, it's unfair. It's not there. It's expressly not their responsibility. Sarah, to your point in terms of who gets to unionize and who doesn't, we are not tasking those folks with sort of fixing those problems. We are tasking management with fixing those problems. And, like, it is such a miss to feel like those are things that are passively happening to you, but you don't have a role in fixing them. Yeah, and I don't. I don't know, Ag. I keep coming back to that, but I think it's important. But like, you know, if, if somebody gets hurt, it's always fair to ask, like, was there gross negligence? Like, did something happen somewhere? But like, as management, I want to look very hard at like, what system did you put in place to prevent that? How many things did they have to subvert in order to deliberately hurt themselves? Or like, was that truthfully, statistically going to happen sometime this week? Mm-hmm. Right? Because Because you wear that. Outside of something really exceptional, you really where the work environment you've created, whether that's in like $2,000 air on chairs or out in the sun for 12 hours a day. Yeah. So to that point, so this is a very low stakes story. Nobody got hurt here. But uh, there was one time when I was working with a farm, somebody got stung by a bee because you're outside. It's going to happen. And uh, the farmer I was working with had to drop everything and run to the field, which was 20 minutes away to find the EpiPen because nobody else knew where it was. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, the person who got stung was not, in fact, allergic to bees. However, had they been, yep. you know, we would have had a big problem. The farmer afterwards is grousing to me about, like, the dang foreman doesn't blah, blah, blah. And I was like, who hired someone and didn't tell them where the first aid kit was? This is the kind of thing we're talking about. It's a really straightforward example of ways you can help yourself. And then he lost an hour going back and forth to the field to fix this problem that a foreman should have been empowered to fix. Mm-hmm. And... We're not saying management has to be responsible for bees. That's like, it's a really good example, right? Like, like bees happen. You can mm-hmm. put that on a t-shirt, right? Mm-hmm. Bees happen. The question is like, who was hiring the foreman and how was that person held accountable for health and safety of the workers? And similarly, like, again, the foreman has a role there too, which is like, how are you in a spot where you don't know where the first aid kit is? That's like question on day one. If someone didn't tell you, then someone ought to have, but here we go. Go figure it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course it all happened on the day of an audit. So everyone was having a great time. I just assume auditors bring an envelope of bees with them. Yeah, that's how we like to roll on the street down the country highways. I want to come back to the, okay, we went from organized to gossip to you make a great point of gossip kills organizations. So when I say that, I mean, connect. We're going to talk about what are our problems? How can we solve them? We're going to do productive talking. On the EpiPen thing, like Mm -hmm. every new employee at Raw Signal Group, everybody who starts on day one gets told Melissa's EpiPen is in her backpack. Aw, like, not because it's any of their job, but just in case it comes up, in case things get weird, like, that's mm-hmm. where it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, orientation is so useful. I'm I'm looking back to how many jobs I started in, and they really just kind of free you in, you know, like you said, at the deep end. And then they get so upset when things don't go smoothly. And it's not just risk mitigation, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I know you're also a fan of Zainab Tan's book, The Good Job Strategy, right? But, like, one of the things she talks about a lot in there is cross-training. Mm-hmm. And cross-training is one part welcome to the organization and you get to connect with some colleagues Mm -hmm. and it's one part understanding how the business works. Like once you've touched all the pieces of it, you're just much more able as a like, you know, creative and resourceful and whole human 
to integrate and understand why this change that we're making over here is going to have this downstream effect that I'm noticing, but maybe somebody else hasn't, right? But like, it's also just from a from an ongoing operations place, it's so much more resilient if everybody's like onboarding is one piece of it, but like if everybody can at least a little bit switch hit into other roles, you're just so much more resilient to like, Sarah had to go run and get the EpiPen. So like somebody else has got to cover the cash for the next month or for the next hour, right? Like that's a powerful thing to be able to lean on in, or in terms of like an organization that is in a happy place, the care-based place. One of the things that supports that is the fact that that we can cross-check each other and that we can cover off if somebody's got something surprising to deal with. And like from a non-cynical place in terms of like being able to ask questions if something, if you encounter something in cross-training where you're like, that doesn't make sense to me or like, to Jonathan's point, you know, this is going to hit a wall that, that you can't anticipate from your vantage point, but I can actually see because I, I live downstream of this. Mm -hmm. For sure. But I will say like one of the things that, that we wanted early on was a way to say like we are starting this business with an idea of the types of organizations that we want to work with and expressly the types of organizations that we don't want to work with what makes a good partnership and what doesn't make a good partnership. And we have amended it over time in part because we've learned along the way, like some things in terms of like, oh, that didn't feel so good. And, and what do we need to have in place day one? And so it really gives both us and also our team an ability to scrutinize, like here are the things that need to be in place. Here are the organizations where like we are exactly the right fit. Here are the organizations where we are exactly the wrong fit. And we should just like step back slowly. When I talk <laughs> about like structural stuff, obviously Melissa and I can choose to revoke that policy, right? But every day that we don't make that choice, every day that we don't show up and say, actually, screw it, right? Is a day that our employees all know if inbound comes in from some weapons manufacturer, that's not us. Like, I'm not actually making a judgment right now in this moment about whether the person emailing me is a good or bad person. I'm just saying that it's out of policy. So we're not going to do that work. And then let's figure out who does corp dev over there and what partnerships we can, or like what conversations we can start on their business development team to, to make those things go versus just like who's got money and is doing this, but I worry they're going to do, they're going to make me sell my soul. And if you have like a quick list of the things that are right out, the things where you're like, Oh, a partner asking to do that would feel like way overstepping or way out of bounds, or we wouldn't feel good about that work, then write it down now before you're in those negotiations, because the minute you're in the negotiations or in the conversations, it is less easy to remember. Those are the lines. Those are the things that you didn't want to cross. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And pulling on that negotiation piece, number one rule of negotiation don't negotiate with yourself. Mm -hmm. Figure out what matters to you. Let them negotiate for them. You don't need to do that on their behalf, right? And so like, if you're talking to people that you think are really positive and like creating good impact in the world in an adjacent space where like, that would be a really cool partnership. Great. Maybe they're going to give you worse terms. Maybe they're going to want a liquidation preference or they're going to want 20% or they're going to want super shares or whatever. But like, we're having a different conversation than are you going to use me to kill a bunch of brown people? Because like, I really need to understand how you're planning to apply that. The thing I would say is like, we talk with bosses at like nonprofits and stuff who say, oh, it's impossible to hire because at least in tech, you've got so much money, right? Like you can just throw salary at people and we just can't do that. And so like anybody who's really good inevitably ends up leaving to go work somewhere else. And we're like, for some people that's true, right? But I can also name people who have left tech to go work in something that had a soul, right? And the thing is, you're not hiring 80,000 people. You need three. So, like, it's possible that 70,000 people are going to be pulled by the salary and it's insurmountable. You just can't catch up. But that still gives you a 10,000-person pool and you only need three, right? Like, it's true that, like, a lot of VCs, a lot of institutional investors may not know what to do with atoms because they're so used to dealing with bits. 
but you don't need 10,000 investors. You need one or two or three who actually get it and who you would really want to work with. It's so good. Yeah. Agriculture in North America is remarkable because we're not exactly trying to go to the moon. We're just trying to grow food. And we have probably the biggest ratio of arable land to people on the planet. And yet total scarcity mindset. It's incredible. I have some speculations on where the top down, it's okay to be a manager and not know what you're doing culture came from. It's really unpleasant though, but I have documentation. We can go there if you want. You've got the legacy of the American military. <laughs> oh, it's worse. <laughs> Let's see. Do I, have, do I have the book here in person? I think it's an ebook. So a former McKinsey consultant became an historian because sometimes people leave the high paying jobs for, I don't want to say a thing with a soul. She went into academia, but they, they leave for a different job, right? Caitlin Rosenthal traced the origins of Western business culture back to the sugar plantation. So yeah, a lot of the stuff that we kind of credit to quote unquote, the industrial revolution were actually social innovations that came from plantation slavery. Plantations were a lot more industrialized than people give them credit for. And what we're calling the industrial revolution was just when we took social methods from the plantation and introduced them to white people, that was the industrial revolution. And also there was some coal, but the social groundwork for it was really laid elsewhere. That's the TLDR. It's, when you say that to folks in the South, they say, oh yeah, that makes sense. When you say that to folks in the Northern US or Europe or Canada, they get really upset because they're like, that never happened here. I'm like, yeah, but where did all your money come from? Where did your management class come from? Because that was a, a standard step in young professionals development in the 16, 17, and 1800s was you go, they call the job bookkeeper. So you go be a bookkeeper. It's like an internship. You go do a bookkeeping internship at a plantation. They called the job bookkeeper, but it was slave driver. Like that was the job. So I find that stereotypically, a lot of folks believe that the slave driving job was like a poor white local person's job. Not possible. You had to be literate to keep the records. That was the point of the beatings was to keep people in time with what your records were projecting and what your projections were. You had to be literate. That was an intern job from like guys from upper class families. So they go there, they get trained on how to run an operation, and then they take that skill set with them wherever they're going. U.S., Northern U.S., Canada, Europe, that's really the genesis of Western business culture. Once you get a look at that, and once you kind of get a look at, again, the workplace culture and agriculture, and how similar it is to tech, you really can't unsee some things. So those are my suspicions as to why we feel like it's okay to just throw people in over their head. The consequences don't really matter. For some reason, we just believe that it doesn't matter if you treat people poorly. And that is a an element of Western business culture that's just really stayed consistent for over a hundred years, even outside of that context. I think that's what happened. Well, so yeah. I haven't read that book and yeah. <laughs> processing it in real time. Is like I have several reactions at once, right? So one is that there is exploitation and injustice and, and cruel treatment that happens in tech, but I would personally be so careful analogizing mm -hmm. it to chattel slavery because it, mm -hmm. it was just a different. Oh, no, type, yeah, they're totally right? different things. It's the but, management culture. But the idea yeah. that like, that there is an entitlement to being particularly an executive, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly a, a white male executive running a tech organization. I don't know how you could look at the last 20 years of, let's say, tech startups and not conclude that there's a category of people who have a sense that they're supposed to be there, right? Like, again, you can't see inside of other people's head, but in terms of their actions, you know, how often they, they invite genuine accountability and repudiation versus how often they just fire and silence those people. Like there's this, this real sense that to speak out against the senior leadership there is, is like insubordinate. Mm -hmm. And that word 
carries some weight to it. I can totally believe that the power dynamics that were developed to exploit an entire group of people for hundreds of years mm-hmm. continue to echo through mm-hmm. especially North American business culture, which is the one I've got the most experience with. I can totally believe that even without drawing a direct connection, but like, yeah, it is, it is exactly as provocative as I think they wanted it to be when they wrote it. Yeah. I'll say a former McKinsey consultant. I think she was starting to do some historical research and went, wait a minute. We teach people this. <laughs> it's like, we laugh so we don't cry. Yeah. And again, like, as you mentioned, there's some real risk to going like, oh, this is just like this historically terrible labor situation, right? That is a thing that I really definitely don't want to do. So like, here's a great example. So my family's from, I found this out, uh, Harlan County, Kentucky. I say, oh, Harlan County. I wonder what was going on there. Oh my God. <laughs> so to catch folks up, if you're not familiar with that one, there were some strikes that got so prolonged and so severe that the U.S. called in the National Guard to force people back into the mines at gunpoint. So that becomes a situation where a lot of folks who I think like maybe their heart's in the right place, but, you know, they kind of go like, well, this is just like slavery. And I'm like, mm, it's really not, though. The legal situation is very different. The material and logistical situation is super different. It can be bad and also be different. It doesn't have to be that one thing to be the problem, right? But that is simply to say that you know, if you have a management culture that is born in a particular set of circumstances, you kind of get a lot of assumptions and you get a lot of attitudes that I think have really carried forward in some ways that are very consistent. So we just, we have some imperious attitudes in our management culture that for whatever reason have gone forward for hundreds of years after slavery was abolished and they've never really checked our attitude. I think that like, that's kind of what I'm trying to point to here. And that is just fascinating to me how we can keep that rolling for this long without really checking that attitude. Yeah. Well, and where would that check come from? Right. Like to bring it full circle, we started by talking about risk and identifying these risks and like whether it's threatening with a lawyer or whether it's threatening with labor action, right? Like those are the tools you can use to try and bend that power when somebody doesn't want to exercise it in a just way. But truthfully, like history's got a hundred examples for every example of a leader being held to account by an external force. And, and really changing their tune. We don't talk about them so much, but and like not anymore anyways, but when Travis got kicked out of Uber, mm-hmm. you could say, okay, there's accountability, right? Like Travis Kalanick, for people who don't follow tech as closely as we do, CEO of Uber, did a lot of awful things, yelled at his own drivers and several videotaped engagements, whatever, and was eventually forced out of the CEO seat by his board. And so you're like, there it is. There's comeuppance, right? Nobody took away his shares. He's doing just fine mm-hmm. in terms of his bank account, I assume, because that accountability was that he lost his CEO seat. He's off running other companies like and doing it with a healthy bank account that was built on the back of that exploitation. And this image of National Guard troops forcing people back to work at gunpoint, like you'd have to do it by analogy. The National Guard, as far as I know, is not deployed on tech campuses right now. But by analogy, you can see the places where it rhymes. You can see that there are like... There's exploitation happening in tech companies where people can't quit because they're on visas Mm -hmm. and they'll be expelled from the country if they lose this specific piece of employment. Like that's not direct violence, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly the threat of totally turning your life upside down if you choose to defy a leader who purchased your organization. Mm -hmm. Well, I think agriculture and tech in the U.S. are the two main sources of worker visas. So in ag, we have the H-2A visa and in tech, you have the H-1B and uh, the ways in which those visas are deployed to let people in, but keep them scared really rhyme quite a bit. And it's very telling that, you know, I'm Canadian 
And when Melissa and I met, we were both working for Mozilla, which is an American organization. And I had to travel a fair bit back and forth across that border. But I was an executive, at least by the end of my time at Mozilla. And so Immigration Council prepared a whole package for me, got me a visa, but it's not an H-1B. Because like, that kind of precarity is just not what they would put in front of me, right? And so they gave mm-hmm. me a, a visa that allowed me to move back and forth without that. And it wasn't resident. And so like it had different characteristics. But even when it comes to something like who is allowed to work in an American, com- an American tech company, we have different answers depending on who you are and how we want to treat you. Yeah, the flip side is like when I moved to Canada from the U.S., I moved on a carve out, like a weird little carve out of NAFTA legislation that like sort of little deploy, but for management consultants, that's a weird little carve out for NAFTA people. Although now that you mentioned McKinsey, like I wonder who wrote that clause. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) McKinsey remembers. Oh, there was something kind of wild. I remember seeing, you know, there's some criticism of guest worker visas and guest worker programs in most of the Middle East, a little bit of Singapore, I was seeing Saudi Arabia specifically being pointed out as you're tied to a specific employer. If you displease them, you can be evicted from the country, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm looking at this and how it's being described as a modern day slavery system. And I'm thinking, this is how H2A works. It's quite remarkable how Saudi Arabia gets all kind of flack for it, as it rightfully should, but our entire food system works on exactly this kind of guest worker program. And we're not having conversations with ourselves about it. That was interesting to me. This happens everywhere. You know, right now, tech is seeing a ton of layoffs. And when we talk to leaders, even of of smaller organizations, they're staring down layoffs and they're trying to figure out like what they can do. There's the mandated legislated minimums in terms of notice period, in terms of severance, in terms of continuation of benefits, whatever it is. And above that, you're just figuring it out from whole cloth, right? There's not a lot of guidance about like, here's the basic here's a living wage, here's the standard in your industry, right? Like, you can go and ask those questions. As a leader, you can say, I want to be informed by this. And there are great examples out there of people who have done it atrociously and people who have done it really thoughtfully, including things like continuation of visa supports and helping those people find a path to permanent residency that isn't contingent on their employment at the company that's laying them off. You can do all that stuff, but only because you choose to, not because any of those people are are really going to sue you successfully, particularly not if they're evicted from the country, but even in the cases where you're talking about a citizen, you're doing that because you choose to do that because you you choose to treat those people differently. But as soon as you go beyond the legislated minimums, everything else is really up in the air. And, and a lot of these leaders from a p- position of stress and financial concern or whatever are trying to figure it out the best they can, but to, there isn't much to build off of other than looking at the person next to you to see what they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a kind of a quick and dirty, you know, just kind of in the vein of here are the legal minimums, but if you actually want your place to run right, what should you do that's above and beyond that? So my quick and dirty thing that I would do for indoor agriculture clients and greenhouse clients, when you get in your Uber from the hotel to the site, I'll ask the Uber driver, hey, like, what are you making per hour doing this job? You know, and you kind of have to have a conversation about it because I think Uber kind of works hard to make sure you don't know what your per hour take is. Yeah, But you kind of, you know, drill down and, and kind of figure that out. And then I get to the site and I say, well, Uber drivers are making $15 an hour. So you need to pay that plus, I would say, at least 20% because you're trying to get people all day, all the time. Uber is awesome because if somebody's being a douche, you can just kick them out of your car. You have a little bit more autonomy and independence on your hours. So that's your baseline. If you want somebody who can do kind of basic self-actualization and has a reliable ride, you need to do Uber plus 20%, bare minimum. This seems very straightforward to me and actually quite obvious. And I'll tell clients this and they'll look at me like I grew a different head. 
that's been fascinating. And then they always complain that they have staffing problems. And I'm like, I don't know what I told you. <laughs> it's the Uber test. It's super easy. And y'all won't do it. We hear a lot of staffing issues and tech workers by and large are paid considerably, right? Like generally large sums. And most of what they're complaining about is not necessarily comp. It's not necessarily the salary piece of it, but it's often the like, the how am I treated and how much autonomy do I have and how much am I able to like come to work and do good work and how much is the rest of it like just a lot of noise in terms of like how frequently do we change direction, how many things that I'm working on like are never going to see the light of day, right? Like the futility thing is a big problem of like, I'm working on this, my own boss thinks it's important, their boss doesn't, like I already know that this is going to get canned and I'm still having to show up every day and, and sort of hammer on a keyboard and try and make this thing go even though like it has no hope of ever seeing the light of day. I think everybody wants to do real work, right? Everyone wants to feel like they're doing real work, whether that's like on a computer or making food for people, right? Like everybody wants to feel like it matters. And I think there are a lot of folks who are like, I'm actually okay to go to work and like do the work and I don't need it to be my everything. I don't need it to be like my sun, moon and stars. I just need to be able to go do some stuff, feel like I had positive impact and then go home or like mm -hmm. then sign off or like shut down the computer. I think the problem we have in like most organizations is there's just a lot of things getting in the way of that happening. Either at the like, I'm trying to like make food and like get to the end of making the food or in the like, I'm trying to like make software and get to the end of making software that like so much of what Jonathan and I do day in, day out is trying to figure out like, how do you get folks who are really skilled and really like excellent and exceptional at their craft to just be able to come in and do that for your organization? Like it should be so straightforward. We should all want that not only from like the employee perspective, but from the manager, from the boss, from the CEO, from the owner, founder perspective. We should just want people to be able to come in and do good work in our organizations. And so much of like day-to-day -day work is not being able to do that because like something's getting in my way and the thing that's getting in my way is predictable and it's irritating and it's constant. And we pay someone to diagnose those, right? There's a job that is in charge of like how effective is our labor force at accomplishing the things we want to accomplish? Where are they being set up for success? Where are there obstacles in their way? Where do they need different training, different tools, different access to other parts of the organization? Where are they missing contacts? Like, that's not, we didn't invent that. That's a thing. It has a name. We call that management, right? Like, that's what those people are for. And, you know, it's one of the conversations we have anytime we're working with a group. We're like, why do you get paid? But do you know, and not, not from a hostile place, not from a rhetorical dunk, but like literally everybody can report to the CEO. That's not illegal. And so like, why do you exist as a role, particularly outside of the sort of player coaches who do a little bit of technical work or, um, for whatever value of technical, but then also have a, a management load, right? For a pure play manager, what is the value that the organization is getting that justifies your paycheck? And there are answers. It turns out it's very hard to get a large group of people aligned and working well and well-trained and well-supported and connected with the context they need. Like, that's a full-time job. You can do that job all day, every day, but we have a name for that job. And like, if your team is not getting those things, it's not their fault. We have somebody who's supposed to be doing that, right? If your team is working on stuff that will never see the light of day because it's misaligned with the context in other parts of the organization, that's not their fault. There's somebody whose fault that is, and it's the person orchestrating that work, right? And yeah, when we, when we put that in front of them, it's just to ground it in something real. Melissa said it, like management is real work too, but it's only real work. It only feels like real work. You can only go home at the end of the day and feel like you did real work if you have any idea what it is. 
And if you have any sort of grounding, any kind of objective grounding in what it is to do it well or do it not well, and so many organizations are led by people who don't have that grounding themselves and then hire a bunch of people who think like them, but may or may not come from any of that background either. And it just, it perpetuates and you can have very large organizations that are profitable because code is, is really magic. We did something neat with that one, right? In terms of its ability to amplify human effort and drive up margins, like it is really good at that. And that can conceal a ton. And then any of the companies that we've, we've named that have sort of collapsed, it's because success hides all sins for a time, but like the sins compound mm-hmm. and like, and then eventually that will outstrip even technology's ability to, to deliver high margin returns. And suddenly you're like, wow, the, the whole place is full of rats. I wish we'd known that. Right. But like, <laughs> where did like, they all come from? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. None of the people who could have told you that could get the CEOs here. The term real work, at least in agriculture, it gets weaponized against uh, everybody who's not a white dude. Food processing, that's not real work because brown people and women do it and white women do it. Marketing, not real work because... <laughs> not real work in tech orgs either, right? Engineering is the mm-hmm. only real work in tech orgs. So like mm-hmm. HR, like not real work. Like there are so many sort of aspects of that. And and similarly, it's the place where like there are fewer white men. We're the same industry, really. It's it's wild. We don't make any food. Yeah. We uh, eat a lot of food, but we don't make any food. Well, You'd be amazed line. how much agriculture doesn't do that either. <laughs> don't get me started on the ethanol industry. Um we stole too much land and now we have to do something with it. And uh, if it's wasteful, who cares? Anyway, carrying on land back. Yeah. I, I want to speak to something that Jonathan has just mentioned, which is management is a real job. It's wild because I think I'll say this all the time in lots of different companies, including startups, uh, flat organization. We don't have management because they don't do anything and it's not a real job. Well, not if you're doing it badly. So this kind of goes back to this whole management culture that we have of It's okay for management to be useless. It's just a thing that we kind of throw people into when we want to pay them more. And it's a status thing. And we don't really think to ourselves, there's a real job to be done here. So that's one of the things I appreciate about you guys is you talk about management having a job. That is a thing that I try and work with my clients to to kind of grapple with. In any agricultural enterprise, the trains really have to run on time. And uh, something I have to keep like hammering home to my clients is, so that's your job. The trains run on time. You're the one who's supposed to make that happen. Like, have a schedule for things. Um, yeah. If it were normal, they wouldn't need you, right? So, like, if it were normal, you would go in and it would be there already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's one more prominent indoor egg startup that didn't hire me that is now in serious distress. So now I get to feel like I did something. There you go. Tech does have one secret code word that people who actually value management for some version of it, keeping the trains run on time, whatever whatever you want to call it, in tech, they self-identify as operators. And like operator is the only word you can use that isn't visionary, that anybody in tech will listen to at all. You can say manager, vice president, executive, they they tune all that out because they, they give those titles away like candy if they're trying to recruit someone. Your hair starts to turn gray. They call you a seasoned operator. Seasoned operator. And like yeah. there are so, plenty of people who self-describe as operators who are very bad at it because like they figured out that the term has some cachet. But to be described by a bunch of your peers as an operator turns you into a thing where like, okay, well, when things start going off the rails to continue the train metaphor, then like we should probably bring in a seasoned operator and you reinstitutionalize white male power that's been there for a long time. But it's it's one of the only places you consistently see tech assign value to what is fundamentally like management work is when they call an executive an operator. So you just tuck it into your bio somewhere. Seasoned operator. 
You're talking um, to management trainers. So like we people run at cocktail parties. They're like, oh, that sounds awesome. I will be somewhere else. Bye. Bye. Amazing. Least yeah, interesting what is, title. What is that like? Because again, like as you've probably noticed, there is a lot of management consulting out of there and most of it is nonsense. So what's it like trying to be legit in that business? Trying to be legit. You are legit. What's it like being legit in that business? I mean, I think when we started, we started from a pretty fighty place. We started from a like having sat through really garbage like useless and worse than useless, like brutally painful management training sessions that were led by people who hadn't done anything. And like, to Jonathan's point, like it, there are things that are worse than being an operator, like not having any operational experience and then telling like trying to tell operators in tech how to operate, like, fuck you. Like, I'm definitely not listening to you. And like, if you are so good at the operational bits and pieces, then show me where it shows up. But if it doesn't show up, then like, it's very hard to engage from a tech perspective with folks who haven't done or haven't founded or haven't lived it. And so we started with the idea that like so much of what was out there was missing. Like the reason why tech was not doing a great job at like getting leaders trained up is one part sort of tech's defiance on, on sort of anti-management stance. But on the other side, like even if there were a market for it, the market was filled with folks who were doing a really poor job. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm hesitant to call it grift, right? Like I think many of the people doing it feel like, they're doing an important and good thing. And maybe several of them are having a positive impact on their orgs. But I'll say like, one thing that we already talked about is that I get a lot of joy from talking to a leader who says, man, I would approach that totally different. Like I've got a conversation next week and I thought it was going to go one way. And now I can see why it needs to go another way. Like that's really wonderful to me. But one of the other things that, that really sticks with me is when somebody pulls us aside at the end of a program, particularly somebody who's been at it for a while and says, you know, I've gone to a dozen of these things. And like, this is the first one that makes any sense. And it's the first one that I've taken anything useful from that I can go and apply. And like, I would say that because like, that's what we orient towards is like stuff that we can give you on Tuesday that you can put into practice on Wednesday, because like we're really trying to build some operating competency and it doesn't help to talk purely theory. Like it, it's, there's gotta be some, some actual practicality to it. You know, when we started, we had this hunch because of everything we'd been through that like the industry was not well served that like the discourse around training in management and leadership topics was often very academic or very coaching oriented around personal discovery, which is great and valuable and important, but is only a piece of the like competency you need to build. And so when we hear from people who say, this has really changed how I understand it. And I've done six of these things before. It feels like a validation point for us that the work we're doing really matters. I mean, I think that's the bottom line answer to your question is like, we love it. And I would say like there's two elements that feel like real mission success for Raw Signal Group that in the early days, we were like, we we're trying to make an uncool thing cool. We're trying to take this thing that has like a dreadful market reputation and trying to be like, not only can it be great, like it can be, but you need it, right? And you should ask for it at the moment of promotion. And so for us, like it's been really neat to not only see it as like, it is a de facto answer in a lot of tech organizations that the moment of promotion is a moment of training and a moment of education and skills development. Like that is huge and was not true six years ago when we started. And then the second piece is that people who are getting promoted at the moment of promotion are like, great, like which class am I taking? And like, again, just mind blowing because that was, it was unheard of when we were coming up in our first management roles in tech. It's so good. And it doesn't have to be us. Like, you know, we write a, a biweekly newsletter, right? And when people read the newsletter, we've had people come back to us who, who run their own small businesses and say, oh, that's great content marketing, right? Like that's so smart because you go and you write that thing every two weeks and you talk about a topic and you make it sound interesting and like that'll let you sell. 
and it is not a major sales driver for us. Like we do it because that's where our art lives. Like you need a place where you can talk about this stuff and work through some of these topics and their nuance, right? And so we we write that every two weeks to do that. We'll tell people if we're doing something there, but it is not a major sales channel for us. It's purely because you need a place where you can talk about stuff. So initially, I think like we talked about sort of weekly and we're like weekly for us feels feels just wild. I don't know. I don't know. People do daily and that blows my mind. Biweekly feels really good. Biweekly is sort of a nice cadence, but there are people who really do daily newsletters and I, I have no idea how they do that. It's still daunting. Like we have a system for it now. We have a way that it works and a way that it feels for us, but it still throws us. I'll speak for myself. You know, the Saturday before a Wednesday newsletter thinking like, what are we going to write about? Like, <laughs> but the nice thing is like, we've been at it now for years and we, you know, people write us back when we write one of those newsletters and, you know, we get into conversation with them. And so almost inevitably the next thing we say is, well, remember when this person said this and, and they seem to be struggling with the same thing that these other people are struggling with. And we might want to point them in this direction. Right. And like, that's generally where it starts. Like if you had to start from a blank piece of paper every time, I would find that very daunting too. You, you just run out after a while, but the nice thing is it, it for us, it's more of a conversation. It's also like seeing the patterns of what organizations are screwing up and all organizations are screwing up and being like, man, they, it does not have to be like that. There are so many opportunities to take a different approach. And oh, by the way, it's not working for you, right? So like many organizations out there get attached to systems that aren't working in part because they can't imagine a system that would be. And so I'm like, our job then is to like put something in front of you that, that lets you imagine something more hopeful, something a little bit different and something that might work instead. Yep, for sure. Yeah. And I think that's something that I think probably a lot of folks get in the newsletter is sometimes it's just nice to be reminded that other people out there get it because sometimes it feels very alone. <laughs> there was a point when I was doing a lot of audits just deep in an area where every farm region kind of has its own personality and making the trains run on time was just deeply not a part of the culture. And that really had impacts towards the people who worked there in terms of health and safety, among other things. And it was just, it was a grim time. And so there were some podcasts that I listened to from like industrial safety folks, like as I'm like shotgunning down the country highways, just to like remind myself that someone out there cared because it was very hard to remember <laughs> in that time. So those things are nice. It just helps you remember that again, like you're not alone when, again, when we talk about the need to kind of like for managers and other folks among each other to kind of speak about what the problems are in the company in, in a productive way and talk about what the problems are that's connecting. And so it helps to have outside resources and connect in that way. Yeah, we've got fully sampling bias on it, but we work with organizations that are trying to get better at this stuff. And so we would say this, but like the organizations that are trying to get better at this stuff are more than zero. There are more than zero bosses out there in the world who feel like they don't have the skills that they need and they're trying to do better for their people than their own boss did for them. And like, that is such a hopeful, like it's a hopeful place to come to work every day. Trying to, and they do, and they do like, we'll work with, we'll work with a group of leaders from an organization that we've been working with for several years now. Right. And so we, we probably know their bosses, right. We probably know their executives because five years ago we were training them up. Right. And so do little things like, you know, quick show of hands. How many of you have had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with your manager in the last week and all the hands go up and like, that is not, that's not <laughs> a guarantee. Right. But like nice. wherever we take the conversation from that point, at least we've got that. Like it's better than it used to be. And if you took the replies that we get to the newsletter and you just did a word cloud, <laughs> I think one of the, I don't know, we've never done it, but I think one of the words you would see the most is validating. It's a word we hear over and over again. They're like, I thought I was the only one. This is really validating. This is really helpful. Like 
now I can see that I'm part of a pattern that is bigger than just me and my own peers trying to get our boss's attention, right? It's just, it's nice to be able to touch that. And for us, it's just such a treat to be able to do the work we do because I don't know, because it's really nice to come into a room and be like, good news, it can be better than it is. And like, here are some things and we'll follow up next week and see how those things went. Yeah. I think, yeah, that kind of, again, kind of touches on something in agriculture as well, which is, it's one thing to kind of see something that makes you feel seen and validated and not alone. I think it's really easy to kind of say, well, what does that matter though? We're just making people feel better, but are we fixing the problem? I will say in agriculture, just the being seen and knowing that you're not alone thing is pretty huge. Something that I'm really trying to work on in my work writing and podcasting about this stuff is I think folks have really been trained to perceive agriculture in a certain way. You know, we had this golden age narrative of things used to be all good when they were family farms and and then agribusiness just came out of nowhere. We don't know why it's there. It made everything bad. And it's a consumer's fault that it's there because we wanted certain things a certain way. And that's a very shame-laden narrative. It's not true, for one thing. Not a word of it is true. It's fascinating. Agribusiness came straight out of farmers' own efforts to subjugate labor. That is where it came from. It's got nothing to do with consumers. It did not happen because of us. It happened to us, right? But as long as you can blame consumers for that, then it's our fault and you can shame people, which is most of the country, and you can demand that they fix the problem rather than maybe farmers taking accountability for some things that they've done and their ancestors did and whose wealth they're still enjoying. So we have this whole false narrative of agriculture that is built specifically to shame people into compliance. It's wild. And the folks that I found kind of when I actually do the historical research and kind of share what I found about this, right? You'll find a lot of people get really upset because they really bought into like, let's say like the Michael Pollan narrative. He didn't make it up. He's just like the most renowned kind of propagator of it. A lot of folks have really bought into that as kind of a spiritual purpose. So they get really upset (laughs) when you kind of like start saying this, here's what actually happened, right? This narrative that you put a lot of spiritual meaning into for yourself is actually not true at all. These spiritual exercises you're trying to do with purchasing things correctly are useless, actually. People get upset. But there's also a lot of folks who I think have sensed that the the Michael Pollan narrative, there's something about it that feels off. But nobody can really say what, because not a lot of folks have the experience in agriculture and the historical research availability to them to be able to say what really did happen. So that's kind of like the folks that I found wind up being the audience, right? I don't really know where I'm going with this other than, you know, yeah, go ahead. I'm going to steal it then Mm because I I just had an exciting thought, which is like, we talk about sort of the parallels between ag and tech and like the, the nobody who's not us can talk to us, right? The idea that like, it's very hard for people outside of ag, like ag has a, like having a frustrating relationship with your consumer. Like you are not in a good spot as an industry. If you hate the people who are using your product, like that is a bad spot to be in. Thank you. I keep saying this and they're like, ah, no, (laughs) (laughs) this this is not a good spot. But specifically when you're talking about sort of folks in ag feeling like that everybody outside of ag has opinions on what ag should be doing or not doing or how it should be done. And that that sort of causes like a turtle moment, right? Of like tuck in and like, like we can't marry you. Yeah. Yeah. And similarly, like tech often has a, people don't understand. People don't understand, right? The consumers are angry about a set of things, but really like it's because they don't understand the technology underneath them. Like it's not actually that they don't understand the technology underneath. It's that they're not happy with the service you're providing and like want an opportunity to talk about that. And we get it in a management context as well, that people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I understand there's a bunch of academic researchers of organizational psychology at like Bayer or whatever, but like in a tech startup, none of that would work. It wouldn't work to do one-on-ones. It wouldn't work to do goal setting. It wouldn't work to do like effective feedback. Like 
those things wouldn't work in a technology organization because we don't lean on soft skills the same way, whatever the nonsense is, right? And one of the things that's been a superpower for Melissa and me and the, the work we do, you know, we don't work exclusively with tech orgs, but when we're talking to a tech org and something like that comes up, we're just able to say, okay, let's talk. We both run large d d divisions of tech organizations. So tell me which part won't work. And just being able to call that bluff, again, not from a standoffish place. You don't want to be in conflict with them. You just want to sort of pull out of the, some of those narratives out into the sunlight and be like, does this still make sense? Like when I play it back to you, do you really stand behind this? Because it seems sort of facile and you understand why if somebody else said this, it would just smell like denial, right? Like, do you want to revise your statement at all? And not from a place of combat, yeah. right? But from a place of like transformation only happens when we're able to like think about the things that we used to think and, and give some space to, well, I don't know whether I believe that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, you make a really good point there, which is people <laughs> specifically in agriculture, it's really easy to feel like, oh, we're just a small embattled group of farmers and people don't get us. Well, why are you such a small group? It's because you kicked everyone else off, first of all. So that's fantastic. You guys are able to not be combative. I find that if you're the first person really talking about this stuff in egg, you kind of have to be. But I'm like, look, the reason there's so few of you is because of choices you guys have made historically, first I mean, off. Sarah, yeah. our first book is How Fucked Up Is Your Management? We started from a very combative place. We have, we have, we've mellowed in age. But I will say, like, one <laughs> of the reasons we were such Sarah Tabor fans from the early Twitter threads was because you were doing a thing that we place a high premium on, right? Like, we try very hard. With the newsletter, with our trainings, with any time we show up, we try to recognize the nuance of the situation, but also like to pull some clarity out of it and to say like, look at this thing, look at this piece of it. And if we just look at this piece of it in context, can we see how this could be better and like where the changes and not shy away from it, not hide it, not turn the other side into supervillains, just like, can we see why this isn't working and why this would be better? And like, so much of your own research like we've said it several times we don't come from ag but like we can follow somebody spelling out like here's how you think it goes and here's why you think that the consumer decisions you're making or the advocacy you're doing is important that it's not that those things don't matter it's that you don't see the machine the way the machine is actually working and once you do you just you've got better empathy for the people involved mm -hmm. and like your detergent shouldn't make you itchy yeah I just, I don't know how you get to, I have so many questions. Anyway, we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. I'm just like, how do you do that? Anyway, Wait, um, which thing? the detergent had like Pseudomonas aeruginosa, oh, like it, oh, oh, high densities okay. in it. And how? Anyway, that's not a problem we can or need to solve today. But I'm just, I'm in awe, really, truly, as someone whose job it is to grow things. I need to know more. The embattled attitudes in agriculture are really, they're amazing because it's a small clique of a couple million people who own trillions of dollars worth of real estate and they think they're the little guy. It's just, it's amazing. And again, we probably see a lot of the same thing in tech. You've got companies with lots and lots of assets, lots and lots of valuation, lots and lots of data, you know, very close personal data on lots and lots of people feeling like they're getting picked on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You've got billionaires railing against elites. I'm like, I don't know what elite means if it doesn't mean billionaire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's just a remarkable amount of cultural overlap in these two fields. And I didn't really know anything about that until I just started tweeting about my experiences. I was just like, you'll never guess what happened today. And then a lot of folks actually in InfoSec on Twitter, that really yeah. seemed to resonate for them. And I was like, oh, there's something here. Okay, speaking of <laughs> departments of risk, though, right? Those people are all like risk and sort of unrealized risk, top to bottom, day in, mm -hmm. day out, screaming about this is going to be a big problem. And people are like, is it though? 
is mm-hmm. it? Like, it, no, it actually, it, it actually is. And similar dynamics in terms of like, you need to do a ton of unloved behind the scenes maintenance to prevent it. Mm-hmm. And skipping that doesn't immediately result in a problem. But at some point down the road, you basically guarantee a calamity and you don't know when. And when you do, it's cold comfort to say, I told you so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was like the the handshake meme of data breaches, diarrhea, you know, just coming together. Tell us where people can find you. So the biweekly newsletter we were talking about earlier is available at worldsbestnewsletter.com. That's a, just a good domain name. Well, you should is. buy it, except you can't because we already have it. Worldsbestnewsletter.com. There's it's only like, one of them. $2 a year set to auto-renew. It's just the, maybe the best thing we've ever done. It's not a, a substack. We, we're not monetizing it. And it, like, it's free. Uh, and then we're on Twitter, at least for the moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm at Shappy, S-H-A-P-P-Y. And I'm at Jonath, J-O-H-N-A-T-H. Beautiful. Well, thank you guys so much for your time. This has been fun. I appreciate it. And you guys enjoy. It's lovely to see you. Thank you for inviting us on. 